Kia ora, I'm Sarah Robson, and today on The Detail... The Kiwi couple trapped in Iran for months say they're extremely relieved to be back with family after a tough 15 weeks. We begin tonight in Bali from where reports say a young New Zealander has been arrested and charged with drugs, offences under Indonesia's controversially severe drug laws. Well, she was a sensible, successful woman who found love online with a handsome stranger. She flew halfway around the world to meet him, only to be arrested and jailed for carrying five kilos of cocaine. What happens when a New Zealander gets into serious trouble overseas? That I had no intention to be part of a drug trafficking organisation and um, if I had known that there were drugs in my bag, um, I would have gone to the police. I looked into the judge's eyes for the first time. I remember right about that time that I knew I was in trouble. Is there anything diplomats can do to help. When you are travelling, you don't travel within the framework of New Zealand law. You travel in the framework of the law and conventions of the country you're travelling. And just how much is at stake? Most people detained overseas are subject to arbitrary decision-making and detention, that the rules go out the door. Figures from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade show there are about 60 New Zealanders who are either in prison or being held captive overseas. 13 are detained in China. There are 12 in prison in the United States. Others are being held in places like Indonesia, Thailand, the United Kingdom and Singapore. Many have committed drug or fraud offences. Some have been jailed for murder. Craig Tuck is a Tauranga-based lawyer who specialises in transnational crime. In a situation where somebody is detained overseas and has been charged, generally speaking, there would be multiple jurisdictions involved. It's very much a developing area of law as the borderless society, I guess, of what we now deal with internationally. How much of your work each week is is dealing with those overseas jurisdictions versus what uh, we may consider sort of more run-of-the-mill New Zealand-centric work? So prior to the lockdown, one week a month, um, I would be overseas dealing with cases and people detained overseas. Through the COVID period, everything just really did go on hold, and most of that work now is starting to kick off again with people that have been detained for some period now needing assistance and and the travel and the security forces, essentially, and the information that they've got is being acted upon. So I would say 25% of my workload would be engaged in transnational criminal justice issues one way or another. So what what practically happens when you get a call from a New Zealander who is detained in an overseas jail? Right. Let's just assume that we get a phone call or a, or a contact. The first thing we could do practically, if it's from a trusted source and we can get access to the person who's detained, one of our team would fly directly to the country and the location to the police station or to the jail. Now, uh, whilst that sounds easy on the face of it, sitting behind there is a whole raft of authority and permission that's required to make contact, uh, and there are security um, issues around that. But 
nine times out of ten that's achievable either through local lawyers and the networks that we've got internationally so that we find out exactly what needs to happen the authority from the person detained or through their family uh, and that we're using diplomatic channels and others to first of all get in to see the person wherever they're detained and take specific instructions in terms of what's happened to them what do they know about it? Who are the parties involved? And we then start to, if you like, uh, weave all that various material into a strategy whereby we can be effective advocates. And as part of that, we're, we're getting information about the prosecutorial agencies, how they're working, what the information is, what the actual the code of conduct is in the jurisdiction that we're working in. In other words, what is the court process? Who are the local lawyers that we can trust? And and just as an example, in Indonesia, which we've worked in a lot, I think we sacked sort of six lawyers in a row uh, before we got people that we could trust that were really advancing the rule of law and advocacy rather than just trying to do deals. That's very much a learning experience when you're working with lawyers overseas, that there are so many different expectations about how a criminal justice system should run, what they understand about the rule of law and how they're going to um, advance that rather than just by negotiating their way out of it. And, And sometimes, and in some cases, negotiation is the best option just in terms of discussing various scenarios with the prosecutorial agencies, with the police and with the security services to see if... um, Uh, we can get some movement and traction for the person concerned. This is awesomely difficult for uh, an ambassador and her or his staff to manage. Tim Grosser is a former trade minister, but before his career as an MP, he was a diplomat. Among his postings, he was New Zealand's ambassador to Indonesia in the 90s, and in 2015 he left Parliament to be the ambassador to the United States. And it just simply comes down to the obvious fact that when you are traveling, you don't travel within the framework of New Zealand law. You travel in the framework of the law and conventions of the country you're traveling. Now, MFAT has for decades tried to advise um, our own people on best practice. And if you go into the uh, MFAT um, homepage, you can find, you know, the safe travel advisory. And um, that will range from uh, don't be a bloody idiot and travel there. Um, Actually, I imagine there's a polite version of that with respect to Afghanistan going on at the moment, Uh, down to exercise extreme caution in cases where there is um, obvious danger to anybody that looks as if they may have a foreign passport or money at their disposal. But at the end of the day, I think we and other foreign ministries like us are being overwhelmed by the sheer numbers of travellers. Now, New Zealanders are entitled to the protection of the state, both within New Zealand and outside of it. But there are limits to what an embassy or high commission can do for you. Every situation is unique. I know that some people disparage the traditional response of most foreign ministries, which is to avoid publicity, try and work behind the scenes with the authorities. Um, And there's a very good reason for doing that, because if you 
send screaming headlines through the media, the government concern may feel it would lose face or have its own system called into doubt if they make any concessions. So there's a very good reason for that discretion. And you you will recall that very, um, very difficult case over the nurse who was abducted, New Zealand nurse who was abducted by ISIS. The fate of the Red Cross nurse, Louisa Akavi, remains unknown. Her family, the Red Cross and the New Zealand government say they have not given up hope. Louisa was on her 17th mission delivering medical supplies in Syria in 2013 when the convoy she was travelling in came under fire. Seven people were abducted. I was then a minister and uh, the Prime Minister and other ministers asked the New Zealand media to put a complete silence block on that as we tried to negotiate, and they did. New Zealand media were terrific in cooperating with that. At times, there might be a case for publicity. In other words, I don't think you can you can prescribe a general rule. And then you've got the situation where some states might well use foreign nationals as hostages to achieve political objectives. I won't go into specifics, uh, but there are certain regimes that are perfectly capable of doing that. And therefore, I come back to my central conclusion. I don't think on those really tricky issues, Sarah, there is a single one correct answer. Everything requires looking at it contextually and a subjective judgment on as to how best to proceed. That's always been it. A fascinating element of this work is that's, that when you're working with the diplomats who really have a country-to-country relationship and, are, in my view, less interested in the individual that's in trouble, uh, but certainly interested in maintaining a, uh, a strong relationship with the country that's detaining them, that often it's the lawyer that can say things that point to a weak rule of law or a two-tiered rule of law or that there are problems uh, with with the process um, and the judiciary, you know, who fall asleep in some hearings. You know, there's all sorts of cultural factors that go into decision-making overseas, and I think it's for transnational defence lawyers and advocates to start pointing out uh, what a fair trial is and what due process is and what um, can be expected through the criminal code that exists within, in whatever country. And I guess this is um, perhaps most apparent in cases where someone might be facing the death penalty. Um, I mean, I was watching back some of the news clips um, from around the time when the two ringleaders of the Bali 9 faced the firing squad. I saw today something, something that no other family should ever have to go through. Nine families inside a prison saying goodbye to their loved ones. There has to be a moratorium on the death penalty. No family should endure it. What sort of things are you able to do as a lawyer that governments who need to maintain those country-to-country relationships, what can you do that they can't? Well, interestingly, with the Bali Nine guys, I had lunch with them in Kiribati actually the day before they were taken, and know quite a bit how um, diplomacy can go horribly wrong when a government pushes back against another government and starts saying things about their criminal justice system and about the um, the aid that they're giving and and make all sorts of statements and. 
how once that genie gets out of the bottle, another country such as Indonesia in that situation uh, responded um, brutally. Uh, the Foreign Minister and I are here together uh, to say to the world that Australia deeply, deeply regrets uh, these executions in Indonesia. Uh, these executions are both cruel and unnecessary. But it is for lawyers, as an advocate of the person detained and charged and convicted in the case of those guys, to start really advancing the, the humanitarian aspect of it. For instance, when there's a death penalty, how many criminal justice systems are mature enough, competent enough, transparent enough to deliver a fair result? Bearing in mind that around the world, most of the executions, I think well over 6,000 in China, but you know we've seen in Saudi all around, are for, are for drug-dealing mules. Most of the beheadings, the shootings, the hangings are for people that we could say are at the bottom end of a drug supply chain. And whether or not they get a fair trial... Uh, the result for many is a summary death sentence. And I guess there are a, a number of groups that are saying, well, without the representation, without somebody that knows or can advance the rules or speak on behalf, give that person a voice, then uh, what sort of system are they operating? And that's, the, that's for the lawyers to say and not for the governments to start attacking another country's criminal justice system. If the government decided that going down that quiet diplomacy route was the appropriate action to take, how do those negotiations happen? What what sort of back-channel discussions are going on? Who are, who are diplomats even talking to? would depend on the country. I mean, a situation of that nurse contact with ISIS, there was no government to talk to. We were dealing, as far as I knew, I wasn't deeply involved in it, through intermediaries. With respect to um, a case where there is a, a legitimate government in place, which has um, got some serious issue with a New Zealand resident or citizen, then you would start in the appropriate place, which is with the foreign ministry concerned, you would, of course, be working with uh, lawyers that you would assume the uh, person in question would have hired or have somebody in New Zealand pay for them and work your way through the process step by step. So, um, I mean, it's a pretty logical approach you would, you would follow while trying to reassure the authorities that you were not challenging their law you were looking for some flexibility. What you'd be doing was slowly introducing into their equation political considerations about their bilateral relationship with New Zealand because any legal system that you and I have ever heard of has got discretion in it. So what you're looking for is to try and inject um, some considerations about the relationship into the calculation in the hope that they would exercise some discretion in favour of the uh, New Zealand resident or citizen. Because diplomats don't have a get-out-of-jail-free card that they can just hand to a New Zealander who might be detained in, in, in some overseas jurisdiction. 
Of course not. But the extent to which, you know, if you've got some son or daughter in terrible situations, uh, the New Zealand parents in this hypothetical case would understand that is rather limited. So they will be running off to the media, trying to contact the minister as if the minister simply has to tell the New Zealand officials to play that mythical, magical card. You know, it gets very difficult, frankly. And all the time you have to be conscious about the emotional reality, those people whose children or or husbands or wives or partners, whatever, are in grave, potentially serious danger. How often do these people actually end up out of jail coming home or are you know are there clients that you've acted for who who are sitting in jail for many many years both there, there have been some that have um, sidestepped pretty significant periods of imprisonment and there are others that are sitting for long periods of time in custody part and parcel uh, um, of this, and this is, uh, I, I guess, pretty standard criminal practice, is that the police or security service will be quite prepared to engage in discussions in terms of the value of the target or the witness or your client in terms of their overall operation. And the way that that is dealt with, in other words, if you're assisting them in a particular way, uh, that may have um, the result that you are no longer detained uh, and that you are free to go, but with rules around that. Many of the the other s- situations, and, and I'm talking generally here, not specifically, um, I know of one case where, where a person has been detained without a verdict for five years. That's on a death penalty case with no answers coming back so you you can do what you like to request information and it just goes nowhere. Normally what you would do is kick up a fuss and start political and and, and media action but of course in a a case where someone's being detained and with threat of death penalty you really have to be so cautious about what you're engaging in and, and what strategy you're deploying that isn't going to damage uh, not only the defence position, but potentially end up in a, a arbitrary summary execution. So it's definitely horses for courses and um, uh, being very cautious about the approach that you take, always with the um, end game in mind in terms of what's the best possible outcome here. What are some of the risks if the media does get hold of the story and perhaps doesn't comply with requests from governments to hold off on on coverage of it? How how could a situation be compromised by public attention? I think that it depends on the country we're talking about. I mean, probably the majority of our folk have this idea that quote, international pressure, unquote, and the fear of embarrassment um, is a valuable tool. Well, it might well be uh, with Justin Trudeau, but it might not be the case with the Ayatollah is a simple way of putting it. So, you know, the slightly naive idea that more pressure on authoritarian governments leads to embarrassment, which leads to them 
backing down to some extent. And that's just not how these states function. They may function in exactly the opposite way. You know, I, um, I wonder how sensitive Mr. Putin would be to, quote, international pressure over a consular case right now. Do New Zealanders have unrealistic expectations of the consular assistance that's available to them if they do get in trouble overseas? Oh, unquestionably. Um, many would have completely unrealistic. I'm not blaming them. I mean, they know, they've had no practical experience of how our missions abroad operate, that there are many, many countries in the world we have no diplomatic or consular representation, which makes it um, a huge practical problem. So, yes, there would be vast incomprehension, not just in our country. It would be the case for any country roughly in our sort of type in the OECD. What's a good outcome in some of these cases? A, a good outcome can be something that on a personal level, uh, often, often people engaged in a criminal justice system just want a voice. They want to first of all understand the process that's uh, detained them. They want to um, have a fair shake, if you like. They want to um, know that they've been represented competently and that they've got a, a, a decision that they can understand. But even navigating that, we just had an outcome two weeks ago in Vietnam where the um, death penalty of somebody not a New Zealander had been sentenced to death, had had two appeals that he knew nothing of, didn't know at all, but had got the decisions back that both um, appeals had failed and that he was sentenced to death and that would happen. That's now been, um, he's now been given um, life uh, sentence and the president commuted that back down from death to life. Now, that is an outcome. A lot of the cases that we're engaged with um, are so significant um, in terms of the allegations, in terms of volume of drugs, if you like, or, or um, other serious factors, that there is on no basis, no principled basis, um, hope that the authorities are going to um, release them. That's it for today. I'm Sarah Robson. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Rangi Powick and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Emile Donovan. And thanks to Craig Tuck and Tim Grosser. Mā te wā.